Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is sponsored by the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, the Griffith Asia Institute, the New York Southeast Asia Network, the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies, and the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre. Welcome to the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nicole Corato, Professor of Political Sociology at the Center for Deliberative Democracy and Global Governance at the University of Canberra, Australia, and co-host of the channel. Today I'm talking to Dr. Chris Raurok. Chris is a lecturer in the Faculty of Law at the University of Amsterdam. Chris is the author of Internet Use and Protest in Malaysia and Other Authoritarian Regimes, published by Palgrave Macmillan in 2021. Internet Use and Protest in Malaysia and Other Authoritarian Regimes examines how Internet use facilitates anti-government protests under authoritarian regimes as citizens experience oppression online and offline. This book focuses on the case of Malaysia, but it offers insights that can travel to other authoritarian regimes. Hi, Chris. Welcome. Hello there. Right. So let's begin by situating this book to the wider intellectual agenda of your European Research Council project, um, Studying Authoritarianism in a Global Age. So as you can tell, we did a little bit of internet sleuthing slash stalking of your broader project. So can you tell us about this um, broader research agenda and where does your book fit in this project? Yeah, definitely. So my book was part of a larger research project, which was under the supervision of Professor Marlies Glasius. And it was indeed funded by the European Research uh, Council. And the, the larger project was trying to better understand how authoritarian regimes are challenged by globalization, but also how they successfully adapt to it and how they even can use various forms of, of globalization to their own advantage. And the project, the larger project there, try to provide a better understanding of, of contemporary authoritarian rule as the authoritarianism literature by and large, and especially eight years ago when the, the project started, it was characterized by some fairly outdated notions of authoritarian regimes as these very closed, inward-looking, repressive dictatorships that actually had little to do with how many authoritarian regimes nowadays function under globalization and how they're able to sustain their rule. And more specifically, the, the, the larger project looked at three different domains of globalization, and how these impacted and still impact authoritarian rule. Firstly, migration, so the movement of people. Secondly, NGOs and international transnational uh, networks. And thirdly, ICT. And, and this is kind of the subdomain that my PhD research, which formed the, the basis of, of the book that just has been published. Uh, so this third kind of pillar of, of ICT was the subdomain that my project was embedded in. 
Yeah, and I think that transitions perfectly to discussing some of the theoretical arguments you put forward in your book. And I think your theoretical discussions are highly enjoyable. So the book begins actually by challenging the debate between cyber optimists and cyber pessimists, or the debate about whether increasing the access of ordinary people to the internet would destabilize the control of authoritarian regimes over the source of information. So tell us why you think this debate is unhelpful. What is missing in the cyber optimists versus cyber pessimists debate? Yeah, to provide a little bit of background on this debate. So the idea of cyber optimism, basically the idea that the internet and digital technologies in general would bring emancipation, liberation, and the democratization of authoritarian regimes was very much popularized and articulated, especially in the 1990s, and most famously articulated by some very well-known U.S. politicians, such as Ronald Reagan, Bill and Hillary Clinton, and Colin Powell. And this idea perhaps reached a peak during the Arab Spring, now already 10 years ago, when there were widespread protests all across the Arab world. And the idea became very popular that internet and social media platforms in particular would bring down dictatorships all around the world. But together with the kind of disappointing outcomes of the Arab Spring, in terms of the extent to which these regimes ultimately democratized, a kind of cyber pessimism became increasingly popular that started to stress what authoritarian regimes can nowadays do to control the internet and how smart they've become in controlling their citizens through cyberspace. Now, almost every book, every article on this topic starts with this debate between cyber optimists and cyber pessimists. But what is problematic, I think, about these notions is that they both have a very determinist outlook on the political and societal impact of technology, as in that there are some intrinsic characteristics inside these technologies that either have some very benign effects towards authoritarian societies or have some more negative outcomes. So in more recent times, fortunately, kind of scholars have moved beyond these rather deterministic assumptions and now offer more empirical insight rather than what I would call ideological kind of insights into the issue. But what I have noticed in this field of research is that now sometimes we tend to switch to the other side. So we tend to say, well, the social context is super important. So you cannot say that in general, the internet or social media has this or that effect. But I think sometimes now we tend to say, well, it all depends on the context. And this is what I would call social determinism. And in my book, I position myself in between saying, well, yes, the internet is a tool open to both very noble and evil purposes, but still kind of by setting the boundaries and possibilities of human agency, the internet can still, under particular circumstances, make political outcomes, some political outcomes more likely than others. So we should do more than just saying it depends on the context. It, Of course, the context matters, but it, the question is when it matters and, and how. And this is what my book tries to investigate. And your book investigated that very systematically. You started with a large end study on how internet use or whether internet use has a significant effect on anti-government protests in authoritarian regimes. So before we talk about Malaysia, let's start with a big picture. What did you find in your study? 
Yeah, so the book tries to answer two questions. And the first question I try to answer is whether internet use facilitates anti-government protest. And I've approached that question quantitatively. I did a cross-country study over time looking into the relationship between internet use and protest. And what I found in this study is that, especially in authoritarian regimes, as opposed to democracies, and but also semi-democracies, you see that once internet use increased, measured as internet penetration rates in, in countries, you see that also the number of anti-government protests increase. And I found that this was irrespective of the level of online repression in these countries. So I didn't find that this applied only to the cases where there was very low cyber control of the regime, but basically across the board in authoritarian regimes, you saw that rising internet use led to more protests. So this was kind of the first step of my research. And I then started to become more and more interested in the in the causal mechanisms that could explain why internet use led to much more protest. And in order to answer those questions, I decided to conduct field research in Malaysia and the reason for choosing Malaysia for this investigation into the causal mechanisms was that Malaysia was not only an authoritarian regime, which was ruled by the same government ever since independence in the 1950s, which was authoritarian in many respects and according to my definition of authoritarianism. But one of the most important reasons for choosing Malaysia to study this, this relationship between internet and protest was that you've... In Malaysia, there have been mass protests over the past decades against the same government in power for the very same reasons, for more democracy, but also an end of the corruption in the country, with varying levels of internet use and social media use. So beginning in the late 1990s, there have been mass protests against the regime in Malaysia. And with intervals of a couple of years, these protests have, again, people have again taken to the streets for these very same reasons. And what this allowed me to do was basically to investigate what could activists in Malaysia do with internet in 2016 and 2017, when more than half of the population had access to the internet and more than half of the population was on Facebook and so on and so forth. What could they do now that they couldn't do in the late 1990s? And this this allowed me to kind of pinpoint in much more detail what was going on there and, and how the introduction of internet to society, what difference it made. And what was great was that the very same activists who experienced the protest in the 1990s firsthand could reflect on how their work and how their dissent against the regime in power changed as a result of the introduction of new technology. Yeah, actually, in the book, you use the term um, the inability of authorities to symmetrize um, information in the same way that they did uh, with controlling um, traditional media. What do, you, what do you think were the challenges or the obstacles uh, the regime in power faced in trying to control the digital public sphere? Yeah, this is one of the key questions, I think. And what I tend to see in literature on authoritarianism, and especially the cyberspace in, in authoritarian regimes, is that the power and the abilities of authoritarian regimes are sometimes, in my opinion, slightly 
exaggerated. And what I saw in Malaysia, that many of the interventions that the government tried to do to control cyberspace were largely ineffective. So you saw that after this kind of wake-up call in the 2008 elections, the government invested heavily in paid cyber troopers, whose task was to manipulate information online, to flood cyberspace with pro-government propaganda. The interviewees I spoke to were not at all impressed by what these cyber troopers were doing. They said, well, they're so easily exposed as cyber troopers. They're not very good at what they're doing. The government started to develop all sorts of PR campaigns. But similarly, it was not very effective in in molding public opinion. They were oftentimes very glossy and not credible at all. And some government commentators that were on the government payroll even admitted in some other research that was done by Ross Tapsell, they declared that for some issues, for instance, the huge corruption case that the Malaysian president became involved in from 2015 onwards, that for those type of corruption scandals, there's no way you can steer the conversation in the direction that you would want. So the best that we can do is just to stay silent and let it happen, which kind of tells you something about the ability of of governments to kind of steer the online conversation in the direction that they want to. So there is a clear lack of effectiveness sometimes of government interferences in cyberspace. And one other very important dimension of this is the role that social media platforms play inside Malaysia. So obviously, these social media platforms like Facebook are immensely popular, like so many Malaysians are on Facebook. And Facebook has been criticized a lot, of course, for their dubious role that they play all around the world in spreading misinformation, in cooperating sometimes with regimes that do not like uphold certain human rights standards. But in Malaysia, you see that they actually play a very important role in safeguarding that there is some space for, for alternative political information because the government can only bring down the entire platform. It cannot just censor particular pages on Facebook that are critical about the government. And because of that, the government is very hesitant in Malaysia to bring the entire platform down because so many Malaysians are using the platform for non-political purposes, for socializing with friends and whatsoever. So because of that, the government is very hesitant to take the entire platform down and thereby it provides this kind of safe haven for Malaysian dissent And the journalist that I spoke to, for instance, of Malaysia Kini, said when I would ask them uh, what would happen if the government would block their platform, they would say, well, yeah, then we just spread our news on Facebook. And the government does not dare to take the entire platform of Facebook down. They did block some important news portals. But because these news portals could always kind of spread their information through the major social media platforms, the government is kind of in a very difficult situation and cannot silence dissent in the way that they probably want to. I think this is a fascinating development because the government hesitates to bring the platform down. So they're kind of forced to shift their strategy from curtailing speech to steering the conversation through cyber troopers, etc. And in the book, I remember you have this very 
provocative and fascinating line that says uh, Malaysians' anxiety for state repression seems to have decreased over the past two decades, which made the BN's attempts to instill fear much less effective. Therefore, they had to shift gears and use more creative strategy, not to stifle speech, but to steer conversation. Is that a right interpretation? Yeah, this is something I... So I interviewed many protesters who joined street protest a couple of times, but also many activists. And when I spoke to those people, what came up in many of those conversations was the the lack of fear for the government. And many Malaysians, when speaking about what has changed over the past decades, clearly said that Whereas in the late 1990s, when the first mass protests against the government kind of begun, fear was still very present there, but that this had declined over time and that Malaysians also, because of increasing dissent and multiple protests against the government, that this has clearly decreased. And the government is clearly aware of that, I think. And you also saw that their responses have shifted as a result. For instance, what is very, very striking is that whereas in the first protest that I studied in 2007, 2011, 2012, the government responded with repression to the street protests. Whereas in 2015 and 16, they said, well, we'll just let it happen. We show to the rest of the world that protesting is perfectly fine in our democracy quote-unquote democracy. And what they did is actually to arrest the protest leaders, not on the day itself, but two weeks after when the eyes of the world were no longer on Malaysia. So you clearly see that the government learned from the past and that they tried to adjust to this new situation that had emerged by employing other tactics. You you can't see me, but I'm nodding a lot from, from where I'm sitting at the moment. Um, so we've talked about the government's strategies um, in the digital public sphere. So now let's now shift gears to talk about how the protesters um, themselves utilize these platforms. And to me, one of the most compelling arguments in the book is how internet-enabled mobilization begins long before there's a call for protest. And I think this is a good corrective to the the dominant narrative, I would say, that you can simply mobilize a protest by tweeting and asking people to to go to to a particular symbolic site. But the book argues otherwise. So help us contextualize this argument in Malaysia. This is, I think, the key argument that I try to make in the book. And it follows really my own journey in my my PhD research where I went to Malaysia, I sat down with activists involved in the Bursi organization. And the questions that I had for them were very much originated from the authoritarianism literature that saw the role of internet in, in protest in authoritarian regimes as this tool that could instantly be used to indeed gather a lot of people at a certain moment and to enable this swift collective action. And when I would ask these activists about how they used internet to organize a protest and coordinate collective action, they would tell me, well, yeah, that is, of course, that's important. It is very convenient that we could just like post a Facebook message and inform many people that a protest is going to happen. But what is really important, they constantly said to me, is that we could now kind of 
distribute alternative information. We are no longer no longer have to distribute leaflets or, or papers when we would want to inform people about what's going on in the country. We now have our own news channel online and we could inform people of what's really going on in the country that you don't, won't read in the newspapers. And initially, I've, I saw this, this story as irrelevant because I was interested in internet and protest. But once I kept on hearing and hearing this story again and again and again, I started to realize, well, yeah, this is part of the story that I need to tell, that protest starts long before there's even a call for a protest in changing people's perspective of political reality. Yeah, and, and, and this, is, this is something that, that constantly came back in my Malaysian interviews. And you use the concept of mobilization chain to make sense of the, what is it, the long process before an actual protest event happens. And in fact, the attention of scholars should actually look at the other parts of the mobilization chain. So tell us about this concept. I found it really useful. Yeah, so I tried to, rather than to investigate what internet does to protest, I tried to kind of break the, the process of protesting up in different steps. And I investigate the role of the internet in each step separately. So the first step is basically becoming sympathetic towards the demands of a protest movement. And in this step, kind of it's it's I investigate how internet access and being exposed to online information changes people's perspective on political reality. And as I argue, in Malaysia, this step was crucial in kind of making people ready for protest because they were exposed to alternative political information that was critical about the government. They became more sympathetic towards the demand of the uh, protest movement that I was studying. So this is the first step that is crucial, I think, in understanding the role of internet in authoritarian regimes. Then the second step is what I would say authoritarianism literature has thus far primarily been concerned with, which is the informing of people about a protest and coordinating collective action. So simply, if you want to organize a protest, informing as many people as possible about where, when, and why that protest is happening. And this is also important, obviously. So it's important that you can can let people, as many people as possible know about a protest that you might organize. So this is the second step, the informing of protest sympathizers. And then the third step that I investigated is this moment when you know about a protest that is coming up and you have sympathy for it, but still under authoritarian circumstances, there is high risk involved. So I investigated the role that the internet played in the decision-making just prior to a protest. How do people make such a decision and how do they think about the risks that are involved and what role does internet play in this decision to either go out into the streets and take this risk or rather to stay at home? Right. And what do you think can the world learn from the lessons that you um, documented from the Bursi coalition in, in Malaysia? Because the book has a lot of rich data and thick descriptions of how the movement, is it a movement or a coalition? What's the appropriate term here? It used to be a coalition of political parties and civil society. I think now it's a pretty institutionalized movement with a clear organizational structure. So it's both, but they also present themselves as a movement, uh, but it, it is clearly an organization. 
Right. So for activists, civil society groups, grassroots communities around the world that want to learn lessons from Bercy, uh, what can you share to our listeners? I think what the case of Malaysia clearly showed is that in order to challenge an authoritarian regime or to challenge certain fallacies, institutional fallacies in in a political system, it oftentimes takes more than just organizing one protest. And what the organization of Bercy has clearly achieved is that they've developed a very reputation over time that they could benefit upon once there is a scandal that pushes people into the streets. So for various moments, they have, for instance, with the corruption case of Najib Razak in 2015, they could already build upon their good name and reputation, their large networks throughout the whole country to mobilize and get many people into the streets. So I think what the case of Malaysia and Bercy in particular shows is that the power of a strong and enduring civil society and thereby could really play a very influential role in Malaysia politics. Right. Yeah, that is that is quite compelling. Um, I want to shift gears a bit to spend time reflecting on the methodology you used, especially your field interviews, because throughout the book, you recognized the importance of the emotional or affective dimensions of the mobilization chain or the role of emotions in anti-government protests. And yet, in your methodological note, which is really fascinating, you mentioned that it was hard to surface the emotional dimensions of protests because your respondents from Bercy were keen to present themselves as reasonable political actors and not necessarily emotional actors. So how did you address this challenge? Yeah, this was really a challenge indeed. So this specifically applied to the third step in the mobilization chain where I studied this decision-making process prior to a protest. And one of the hypotheses I had about the role of the internet was that perhaps because of the distribution of very dramatic audio-visual content, such as videos and images showing crowds of protesters or grave injustices, that because of this dramatic audiovisual content, my hypothesis was perhaps people are pushed into the streets because they get very emotional and overcome their fears and join others in this protest. So this is the hypothesis I had. But once I started to interview people that either had joined the Bercy protests or were, were sympathetic to the protest but didn't dare to go, when I started to interview these people about their decision-making, I indeed encountered a lot of respondents that reflected very rationally about Malaysian politics and started to stress how others were driven by emotions and reputational or social concerns about that they wanted to kind of be brave for their friends and so on and so forth, or wanted to show to their peers online that they joined a protest. But for for many interviewees, they showed very little emotion about this decision-making process. And for me, it was hard to assess whether that was just the case or that it was some kind of social desirability answer that I couldn't really break through. What's important to say here is that perhaps I was looking for something that was just not there because 
the protests that I studied were not these sudden, spontaneous ruptures of anger. These were oftentimes protests that were pre-planned for weeks, addressed some very long-term institutional fallacies in the Malaysian political system. So perhaps for the protests that I studied, there weren't these videos or images available that really pushed people instantly into the streets, but perhaps for other protests there were. Right. And I think this is a reminder for many of us who are doing field research about the importance of an iterative process, right, between our frameworks and our empirical findings. If it's not there, then it's not there. Let's not force our frameworks. Let's not force our frameworks on empirical realities. Chris, just to close our discussion, I think it would be productive to zoom out again and think about the trajectory of studying authoritarian politics in a global and digital age. Um, For you, what do you think are the important developments in the field that are worth monitoring um, by both enthusiasts of Southeast Asian studies and observers of global politics more broadly? What's exciting that's happening at the moment? Yeah, a couple of things. So I'm most familiar with the literature on the cyberspace in authoritarian regimes and the research that has been done there. And what I see is that increasingly scholars start to look into the overall digital strategies of regimes. So rather than a single tactic such as censorship or surveillance, you see that the overall strategies of regimes are examined and Questions like, is the goal now of a regime to keep everything secret or or is it rather to censor blatantly to signal the strength of the regime and which strategies are used, what actors are targeted with what types of strategies? So Margaret Roberts' work on China censorship, for instance, shows how its censorship does not aim to cover everything up, but rather to distract the masses enough for there to be a separation between the masses that are not so politically interested and the political elite that they could then further repress through other means. Those types of questions and answers are super important and exciting, I think, as a a scholar. Another field of research that I think is super exciting is our question surrounding how digital strategies come together with more conventional methods of control and the questions whether digital strategies are a substitute for, so do they come instead of conventional modes of repression, or are they a reinforcement, or do they sometimes complement each other, conventional tactics and digital repression? Anita Goethe's work, for instance, shows how during internet shutdowns, you see oftentimes massive repressive operations against oppositional groups. So you there clearly see very important research in how these, these conventional tactics of authoritarian control and digital strategies are, are combined and complement each other. And then finally, you see more and more research into whether strategies of authoritarian control actually work. So what can we say about the effectiveness of all those techniques? So for instance, Pun and, and Siegel's work on Saudi Arabia shows actually the lack of effectiveness from a regime's perspective in imprisoning famous online activists in in Saudi Arabia, where they show that actually in terms of silencing other online dissent, it does not work to put 
some famous online journalist or online commentator behind bars? These are questions that scholars are increasingly looking into that help us to move beyond this frame of the all-powerful authoritarian regime that knows what it's doing and with all sorts of strategies that help in silencing the dissent. Some of these research shows that, well, they're trying, but they fail. And I think that brings us a much more nuanced picture of what authoritarian politics nowadays looks like that is clearly not as one-sided as sometimes we tend to see it. Well, what a treat. That's an instant literature review for our listeners. That's very generous of you. Well, Chris, thank you for joining us on New Books in Southeast Asian Studies. Thanks. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This has been one of hundreds of conversations about other Southeast Asia-related books on the channel. You can download or stream these interviews free of charge from the New Books Network website or subscribe through your favorite podcast app. Thank you.